Thank you for joining us for another Natter and Nor conversation. This series is being hosted by Clarion Call, and Clarion Call's whole ambition is to get behind people who are trying to work better together for meaningful change that follows a community's call to action. In this series, we're interested in exploring what it takes to do that by examining the nuts and bolts of how to come together for whole of community change. We're stepping behind the curtain and looking at what works and what gets in the way. I'm your host, Sharon Fraser, one of the co-founders of Clarion Call, and I'm joined today by two amazing practitioners, Max Hardy and Jennifer Chaplin, who will be exploring what whole of community change really looks like when we do this in ways to mobilise people by strengthening democratic processes. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the many lands that we are meeting on today and pay our respects to Elders past, present and future and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. I would like to acknowledge that all of our work can be strengthened by listening to the voice of our First Nations people and carrying their wisdom and practices into the work as we go forward. I'm joining you today from Jara country. That's the land of the Jajarang people. Max, where are you joining us from today? I'm joining you from the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung country, part of the Kulin Nation and Fitzroy, and not very far from where Archie Roach sang his famous song at Charcoal Lane. And when there was a lovely tribute, flowers recently, and luckily I was able to view from my balcony a parade in honour of Archie's contribution. So, yeah, very special place with a great history and, and contributions. Mm, thanks, Max, and welcome today. And Jennifer, where are you joining us from? Thank you. I'm joining us from the land of the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation. And this land is actually the largest um, nation in the country. You'd probably know it as Southwest Western Australia. So I'm joining you from the city of Perth. And I want to acknowledge in stepping into this, the incredible work that is being led by our First Nations communities here around social change and really modelling what democratic processes can really look like. So Jennifer and Max, we know that when we're talking about mobilising people to strengthen democratic processes, that that's a really broad topic. So we're really keen to get an understanding about what will inform your conversation today. So what is it that you're bringing? What is it from your experiences, your background that you're bringing into this conversation today? Do you want to go first, Max? Put you on the spot. Sure. Thanks, Sharon. Thinking back over most of my professional life has been around working with people to try and create change for the better. You know, And I think that's what sort of where a lot of us come from. And initially I was doing social work and casework. And um, it's interesting, when I got into planning roles and policy roles, I, you know, I started doing this thing called what was then called consultation. And then I found myself working as a consultant. I applied for a job as a community consultation consultant. I thought, oh, I kind of like doing that. And that was a long time ago now. And I realized pretty soon that a lot of the ways that stuff like consultation was being undertaken was very much a tick box exercise and that it didn't really have an empowering effect on communities or the people who were participating in those processes. In fact, if anything, they were generating a lack of trust and an undermining of communities. And so 
Uh, I've been spending a lot of my time, I guess, experimenting with different structures and ways of doing it and ways to tap into community strengths and tapping into collective wisdom and doing it in a way that where there is commitment to actual decision-making and policies that can be shaped and influenced by a more diverse, robust process. Mm. So there's a lot of words I just threw in there, but essentially it's helping people work together, think better together, you know, and I think that for me the legacy of all this work around community engagement and in strengthening democracy, essentially a good legacy is one where people are a lot smarter, they appreciate the complexity of what they're dealing with more, Mm-hmm. There's more respect for different ways of looking at things. There's more self-awareness. There's more setting aside some of our assumptions and having them challenged and arriving at a place where we see that this is a better place to be than if I have just got my own way. Is that sort of that connecting and joining that happens. And when that's embraced and there's room for that, mm-hmm. you see democracy in action. You see mm-hmm. democracy breaking through and mm. amazing things happening. And I want to see more of that happening. So mm. that, that's my mm. passion. I want to see more of that happening. Mm, beautiful. So we'll, we'll have a nice conversation today exploring about how that can happen. So Jennifer, what informs your practice? Max and I are totally aligned on the passion bit and the desire to see how power in decision-making is held differently to get a better outcome but we started at different points in the in the system, if you will, like systems of influence. So I started out working with children and families and then worked through not-for-profits. And the question, and then up through how not-for-profits work in a community context and work together with others, and then how government, governments work together with them and bigger and bigger. And one of the things that always held true was this notion of how we work together and include the diverse voices as experts in their own right, like the context experts, not just the content experts. And so invariably, any of these change processes need to be done in ways that really honor that and harness that and are genuine and transparent. So that's what I'm really passionate about is in order to get a good outcome, we have to actually do this stuff well, which invariably involves a whole lot of things happening. Mm. But what, why, what, what's the benefit of strengthening democracy or strengthening democratic processes by involving people more in decision-making? Why, w- why would we do it? Well, we're never going to fix anything if we don't. And like a lot of, you know, I think Max and I have stepped into conversations and people will say, we had that conversation 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And you're like, yep, because we did it with all the experts deciding in ways where we never challenged what the context was for design or what needs to change or what we even mean by democracy. Mm-hmm. So we just end up having the same conversations over and over again with different people, but we've never shifted what actually needs to shift because we don't have the right expertise in the room and we're not shifting the power structures. What about you, Max? Yeah, well, I love that question that you pose. I love getting back to first principles. And I think if our view or our assumptions are that most people are stupid, easily led, driven by very narrow interests, incapable of appreciating complexity, if we think they're unable to work with others to come up with something better, then why would we invest in it at all? Mm. And I think that what we have seen is that a lot of stuff, so-called engagement, has worked from those assumptions that we need to engage so maybe we can placate people so government can do what it really wants to do mm-hmm. and get on with it. Um If instead our assumptions are people bring a really important component, unless we sort of accept that 
all of us have a blind spot. Government has blind spots. Experts have blind spots. And citizens have blind spots too. We all have them, but we get wiser as we make space to learn from each other and get collectively smarter. And when that smartness and respect can inform better decisions because there's room for that to change, then I've never seen those processes end up with something stupid. And people, you know, politicians, CEOs will say things like, well, I'd like to support this stuff you're talking about, but how do we know that the community aren't going to come up with something ridiculous? Mm. And it's kind of, it's, it's interesting that not only has that, I've never seen that happen, but it can only rise to the surface if we basically run a dumb process. We run a process that actually encourages polarisation of debates. We, we run processes where people just react to the pronouncements of a shock jock and then we survey, what do you think about this? And that's the end of it. Like it's, our processes have been so impoverished that we can tap into the worst in people. And we know that that can happen and we see it happening and it's very disturbing. But just imagine if we worked from the assumptions that people, people are capable of more than that, of understanding otherness, of realising the limits to what we know and become curious and become truly collaborative. And it's like magic happens. And mm. people, I think, you know, the role that people like Jen and I have and yourself, Sharon, I think is we want to share the magic. We see this in action often. We see that people being able to rise to the challenge of working together, being really smart, and how not only does it inform better policy, better decisions, it creates for a stronger, more resilient community. Mm. And that is worth bundles. So why do we do it? Well, we'd be crazy not to do it if that was the outcome of a decent process that made room for it. You're nodding there, Jen. Is there anything else that you wanted to add to that? Seriously, I wholeheartedly agree. And I, just like Max, I have never seen when you go through a, a process that's been invested in, that's genuine and transparent and has the intention of honouring the wisdom that, that diverse people bring, I have never, ever seen it go backwards. Mm. I always learn something that blows my mind from others in the room, even as the facilitator doing that. And the thing that stands out to me in listening to you, Max, is the importance of the bringing people together, even for the relational element. Like sometimes people go into this thinking, oh, we need engagement for data or for approval, or that there's this some kind of transactional outcome. But in fact, it's the relationships between people and the connections that are built in that shared synthesis and discussion and exploration that is actually like the fuel for the fire that makes it work well. So there's all sorts of outcomes that happen that are even in addition to the outcome you've intended to produce from the process. It strengthens connections, it builds appreciation, it builds a shared understanding of, you know, say the community or the context in doing that. And a whole lot of work goes into making that happen. Mm. So that's a good invitation for me to ask another question there, Jen. If it's too important not to do it, then how do we do it and how do we do it in ways that we can harness the potential of it? So you've both talked about that if we do this in generative ways, if we do this in ways that ha are based on assumptions that people can come together and solve complex issues, if we are basing this on the fact that we are not only answering technical questions here, but we're actually exploring what can be some of the greater impacts that can be felt. 
how is it imp- how do we go about this work and how do we not lose the potential of the process we can talk about sort of some of the ways that we go about getting diversity getting people to the table we can talk about the mechanics of different techniques we can talk about you know random selection bringing different people together we can work through community leaders and equip them to have conversations with people where they are there's no shortage of methods for me the starting point is having enough conversations with different people that you know that you're basically trying to tackle the right question mm-hmm. and you're tackling something also that those who do have power and decision making responsibility believe that this is a worthwhile conversation to have and it can help them do their job better so sometimes there's this perception and we hear statements made former politicians we can't abrogate our responsibility by delegating decision making to the community that's what we're voted in to do so we've got this idea that that's what democracy means we vote people in and then they make the decisions and get on with it we've been sort of close enough and observing enough that to see that representative government is a pretty limited form of democracy so when we, when we sort of look at well how do we do it part of it is i think recognizing that we need to be posing questions that we're inviting a community of interest to try and resolve and that sense and and that there's commitment on the part of those with power and a curiosity to want to get that right and instead of that being an abrogation of responsibility i i love what one person said is this is the way i choose to exercise my responsibility mm. there's no reason why that process can't complement representative government if we've got the right mindset and processes that would actually support that to happen mm. so i kind of steer away from here's the recipe or here are the steps to make it happen i think there are really important principles we need to honor but certainly one of them is we need to actually frame a challenge or a question that we're going to collectively work on together and you know when we sort of talk about I, I use the term community of interest because I, I don't know what the best term to use but we have this one sense that we've got the community over there that might be deliberating being engaged being consulted having their say whatever and that's happening over there and that goes through all these different processes as another input to a minister or government mm-hmm. making a decision and i tend to think that let's actually think about the word community differently here if it's a community of interest experts an expert in scandinavia might be a really important part of a community of interest around an issue we're grappling with environmentally mm-hmm. for instance mm-hmm. i say the politicians are part of that community of interest they have interests and they're part of that system of trying to make a decision the senior public servants are the ngos are activist groups are part of it citizens who don't normally get involved in anything are affected by it they're part of the community of interest even when they're not expressing an interest because they may well be unlikely to be affected by it so if we think about that's the community we're trying to engage mm-hmm. it's not good enough that we just engage our communities in having great conversations and exploring exciting things and then we don't know where that will go because there isn't any commitment or i would say that decision makers don't feel that they're part of that community having the conversation mm-hmm. committed to an outcome so i think we've got to get a whole lot smarter in designing processes that mean this community is working together mm. and that includes those people rather than them being outsiders just watching and then waiting to decide if they like what comes out of it or not yeah beautiful there are two things in that that really in what you said max that really jump out for me and the first one is that also actually that leader that 
said that quote about I'm not abdicating my power, I'm using it differently. I quoted her in a workshop yesterday. Thank you very much to you, Max. <laughs> um, actually, there's something about genuinely understanding the scope of action, which goes back to your point about like building that internal, say, authorizing environment. So you want to do a thing with a bunch of people. What's the thing? And what does it really mean? And are we unwittingly othering a group of people to put it on them to create whatever oh, the so a lot of times I'm doing a project at the moment with the health system, for example, and, and three quarters of the work is understanding internally what is in and out of scope for decision making, because there are sometimes boundaries we can't see. And those boundaries aren't, aren't just, say, hard systems within government. They can be cultural or around power in a community. So what is the real scope of what we can do? And how do we understand that together so that when we go to do to even think about a process to get to an outcome? that we have an understanding of what we're working with. Because one of the worst things we do then is we go set about a process where we ask people the wrong questions, to your point about the questions. So we need to be almost like understanding ourselves and the context in which this change is happening so that we can create something to design well together. The other thing is that notion of community that you brought up, Max, and who do we mean? Because it, it raises for me that notion of how sometimes we categorize people in very superficial ways. Oh, that group. And we take it as a one-dimensional or we look at, we'll bring in together business industry, community, not-for-profits. Like we, we have, you know, we all love a good list and a straightforward process. But sometimes the way that we categorize people is reflective of these inherent inequities. So we, we're all in the soup that created the situation in the first place. So there's something about this mindfulness, how we, how do we constantly challenge that we're not reflecting the paradigm that we're trying to shift, even in coming up with what is the democratic process or what are we trying to do through using a democratic mm. process? In other words, I think there's a lot of internal work. Mm. So yeah. with, that, with that then, what is that work? What is the work that we need to do to both support um, people to come in to such a process but also to support the thinking so that uh, people are not coming in with just their name tag. You know, they're coming in with more than the position that they're holding. So, for example, in some work, you might have someone who's a member of the community. They're a community leader outside of their working hours. They also have children at the school. They run their, run their own business and they're on two boards, you know. So how is it that we bring someone like that into the work that's that's really interesting and, and yeah i love what, what jen was saying about the community in that sense too about you know getting beyond <clears throat> how we pigeonhole people i think there's something about if processes happen to allow people to connect beyond the roles and the labels it always strengthens the process and I don't know what it was, Jen, you were saying something and this story come to mind, a really quick one, where it was a, an infrastructure project, the electrification of a railway line, and people were very upset about noise and vis visual impacts of the infrastructure. But it was a very rowdy public meeting. People were very, very cranky. And these two people were sort of at it. One was a, a technical engineer and there was this community <clears throat> leader who was really cranky. And we ended up sort of organising, the, the trains weren't running one day, so we organised a walk along the railway line from one station to another. And as we walked, we had the, the engineers are working, walking in one group and community in another group. Over the course of the whole walk, they ended up 
sort of joining as one group and they sort of paired off. And the two people who were at each other at a meeting, somehow they discovered as they walked that they both had a teenage daughter suffering anorexia. Wow. And by the time they got to the that railway station, so this is where we sort of you know, labels, like, you know, you're the awful engineer, you're the community person who doesn't know much and making a lot of noise. And they kind of othered each other in that way. And that's all they saw. Once they saw, they, they formed a relationship as two parents with a similar battle, do you know, it changed the whole dynamics of the mm. whole process. Mm. That people started working together, talking, listening, pondering, exploring, and it changed the dynamic completely. Now, that was a fluke, but I guess all we did is we made space for people to connect in a way beyond their mm. formal roles where they could appreciate that we wear many different hats and that I think in any impoverished, polarised debate, you know, the people who have kind of a point of view that are opposed to something, for instance, they minimise the differences between themselves. They maximise the difference between the other group and that other group tried to minimise differences between themselves. There's something very powerful, I think, when we see there's many shades of grey here mm. and it's really it's a much healthier process when we're able to recognise we don't all have to stick to one line as a tribe. We are allowed to actually have similar interests but have different points of view. We are able to learn. I think that there's a lot of dynamics around that healthy tribalism. When we see it in politics where there's the party line mm. and, you know, we this is what we need to stick to and we all have to say this. And the other political line, which is we need to look after people who are giving a lot of money to our party to say a certain thing. So we're, we're not allowed to move. We need to make sure we hold this line because of blah. And so all these dynamics that kind of work against allowing ourselves to have shades of grey and to appreciate that there are many differences that are not seen when you have a really superficial polarised debate, which unfortunately the media love and they promote, but it mm. doesn't actually help mm. when it comes to working through complex issues. Mm. So there's a lot to be said about, from what you're saying, Max, there's a lot to be said about getting people into a physically different environment, out of the room, outside, in nature or walking along a railway track. And the other thing you've said is giving people space to talk about anything so that it's not only that they're sticking to a very tight agenda and that they're doing this for 40 minutes and doing that for 40 minutes, but that there is space to talk as people to each other. Jim, what would you like to add to that around the how you bring people together so that they can step into their whole authentic selves and or how you support people to be a part of a process that's a lot more open? I can't stress enough what, what Max was saying about acknowledging that we all bring our whole self and so that there are multiple opportunities to, to connect with each other wearing the many hats that we wear. One of the things that I've discovered along the way is that that importance of making things transparent. Like people often when you have two polarized groups, everybody thinks the other has the power. And it's this kind of mysterious, amorphous, although you know, there's decision making happening over here. But when you start digging into it, it's not like, say, the, the government people who are showing up have all this power. They're feeling exactly the same way as everybody else. So there's something about that, that shared experience of whatever the situation is and helping people find common points of intersection about shared aspiration for things to be different, but also being as clear as you can about where decision-making for X may lie, because it doesn't always lie with people that everybody thinks has the power to do it. You've prompted me to think about something there, Jen. I'm trying to think of the three points. Going back to 
are really old, the games people play, probably come across that, and how people can gravitate towards different poles. And one is the people that actually can be persecuting can quickly behave like they're the victim and they say the other people are the persecutors. And there's another poll. What is it? It's persecutor, victim, and another one. I need to look it up. But it's interesting. Mm-hmm. But you see that in that was sort of something that I used to study as part of family dynamics when I was doing casework. And you see that happening in communities too. It's kind of really interesting that people can sort of shift the narrative about, you know, we're the victim. But in, fact, in effect, though, they might actually be persecuting and making people's lives a misery. I will find out what that other one is. Is it Savior? I know exactly which one you mean, Max, and I can't think of what the third one is. It's something about the how we see ourselves, like the story. The, there's our shared narrative about how things are that we that we unpick and recraft together. But there's also something about how I see my role in that. And I'm thinking about, you ask Sharon, how do we bring people on that journey? And I was thinking about how many different ways you need to connect with people before you step into a shared process, even in a room together, because people see, people take up different roles. So some people may have a role that has always been the the giver of constructive feedback. Well, that's broken. This is broken. This isn't working. But when you're moving into a role of of co-construction or, or creating something new together, that's asking a different skill of people and a different mindset than it is pointing out the broken stuff. And not everybody can actually make the shift. And people need support to be able to do that. And the processes that happen need to support that. But it can be really hard to do when people define themselves differently as well. So there's something in this whole, when we build a process together of change, how do we help people see themselves differently to be able to take up a new way of working together if that's what they can do and want to do in that? And that applies to everybody. That's, that's so true. And I did discover the other point is rescuer. Rescuer, persecutor, victim. And we can sort of slide into those kind of personas and those roles. But Jen and I have talked about this quite a lot about what, what Jen was just referring to there, that when you talk about what does it take for this to happen, apart from sort of talking about some of the tangible practical steps you can do, I think for people who do have a lot of positional power, access, you know, they've got money, resources, decision-making clout, there's, there's a lesson learning to let go and to trust and to invite people to do some great work and to be really, really curious and supportive of the process. But for many people, it is that transition that that Jen's Mm. talking about of people that have almost their whole identities wrapped up in being an advocate for a particular cause. And they're very good at pushing back and fighting for. And we just assume that, okay, if we then share the power and get people in together, that they will then be able to collaborate. And that is not easy. We're asking people to behave in a very different way, assuming they've got certain skills to do that. And we all have our sort of our weaknesses and stuff to learn. So there's this journey about we're actually going to try and do something different here. And so I think I love it when we sort of create this space of let's just be a bit playful here and try and do something a little different that we've never done before uh, and to see what happens. You know, it's, it's kind of it's interesting. I think people do find that hard. But I also, there's an enormous amount of satisfaction people gain by having done something different and for it to have worked. It's kind of like it's that really mm. sweet spot and it's the most, and again, that's when magic happens. Mm. Yes, it's amazing that you're both talking about this. What comes to mind uh, for me is particularly the work that I do and there's a lot of activism or uh, and people are really pushing to be heard 
and when there is the space given for them to be heard or the thing that they've been pushing for, there's a yes answer, not a no answer, they they often flounder. What do I do now? The only the only tool that I've got is to bash. You know, the only thing I've got is to push and push this agenda that's been driving me for years. And now I've got a yes answer. You know, what do I do with that? So how do you support people that are in that place that, you know, you're helping to encourage and hold people to be able to step into different roles or to, to not only take up the you know the act I'm the activist or I'm the business person or, or whatever you're asking them to take up multiple roles so, so how do you really do that in the real world what do you do I'm going to hop in with a very practical answer because I spend a huge amount of time doing this if anybody ever asks the work we do like it's 80 percent of it is behind the curtain and and it's often connecting with people and understanding what they believe the process is and they believe their role is, the value that they add and and finding, I often ask like who influences the influencer. So it doesn't have to be me, for example, that does say an interview or a conversation. It's it's co-opting others or raising awareness of others to connect with with people so that they, to give them the opportunity to think and show up differently. So you're often doing it across all the layers of a system, say with powerful decision makers. I once said to someone, we were doing a community, whole of community workshop, but a whole journey. And one of the director generals was coming along. She was amazing. She'd been an incredible supporter of the process. But we were talking about, we knew that there were a lot of government people coming and, and often they would come in their suits and their ties and lots of symbols of power. And we'd worked really hard with everyone at community to, to try to level that. And so in the, in the course of one of the, the planning meetings, about how we might all dress, just sort of thought we'd raise it and it was casual. And the minister's uh, advisor turned to me and said, I'm not telling the minister how to dress. And I said, hey, I'm just, we're just talking about how we show up in that sense might affect the dynamic and power. So that's like a very transactional. Mm. Like you're, you're kind of working out where people are at and then what kind of conversations or explorations might need to happen behind the scene to help people think about the process differently. And that happens at all layers. So we often use community as the example of how do we, I hear a lot of, you know, that term capacity building. Mm-hmm. We have to build the capacity. Guess what? Everybody needs their capacity built. Um, how do we then work with all the different groups to think differently, to act differently, to show up differently? And how that's done really depends on the context, but it has to be done. And I, in my experience, if you don't invest the time in connecting with people often in multiple ways and sometimes harnessing their voice as well. You know, surveys, interviews, stuff happening beforehand to help people be heard. By the time you step in, it shows up somewhere. Hmm. Don't do it before it will walk in the room. That's great. What about from you, Max? Yeah, well, it's interesting hearing Jen talk about that, that I was just reflecting on how different it is working, say, with with a bunch of councillors when you get them away from their council chambers. If you're sitting in the same spot with the name in front of you, they tend to go on automatic pilot. This is how we interact. This is how we debate. And it's really interesting how part of the journey of learning to work differently does, it's about disrupting, I think, some of those patterns. Mm-hmm. And and I think those same patterns exist for community groups as well. And so I think a different physical environment is one way to try and loosen that somewhat. I do think that it it comes with a lot of uh, practice, I think, learning these skills, and it takes a while to learn them. And, you know, it's a lifelong quest about how to to do this or how to facilitate it. I found it helpful 
for people to, to be asking questions, for people to reflect on and to report on, which is just to create a sense of where they've got time and permission to be a little more self-aware about how they're feeling about something and if they're comfortable and not comfortable and recognising that if we're trying to do something new, chances are we're going to feel a bit uncomfortable. We're going to feel a bit vulnerable. We're going to feel a bit stupid at times. And it's uh, we're on a rapid learning process. And I think that rather than trying to transact come up with a solution really quickly, we need to see, you know, if, if our collaborative muscle has atrophied because it hasn't been exercised ever, perhaps, then we need to create space where we can give permission for people to learn and to fail and to reflect. I don't know if there are many shortcuts to doing it. I don't. Mm-hmm. But I, I get surprised always when someone who appears to be very stuck becomes unstuck and they have some penny drops. Mm-hmm. Something just hits the mark for them or they have this blinding flash of the obvious, perhaps, and they see things differently. And I think mm-hmm. that, that good questions can help to do that. It, it can invite people to reflect. And as you know, Sean, I love this whole work about strategic questioning. I think when you ask really good questions, it makes it very hard for people to go on automatic to answer it. They kind of need to really reflect on it. And so, yeah, I think asking good questions, I think, helps people to get a bit unstuck. People have to find their own way through it. You can't kind of cajole them or force them. You can only invite them to reflect and to think about it and to to give it a go and to recognise when they're making an effort to do things differently, I think, is is important. Mm. You remind me, Max, of the importance of time for shared exploration of something. And so if I think about that transactional lens on, say, a democratic process, it could be we've done all this wonderful work and we get into a, a workshop or a room and we have people put their thoughts up on a wall and then we someone, someone's going to go away and write that up, but we haven't talked about what we mean. And invariably happens every time that when we explore something together, the meaning of words or what we intend, that's the richness of the conversation. It's not the act of giving my voice or putting putting say a sticky note on the wall that has the the bit of information it's it's what we mean and so there's something about allowing time for that exploratory conversation together to come up with the things if you will or to explore what people really mean by the words that they've used and that's just like lighting little fires everywhere because it it will often change the whole conversation mm. It's really interesting how the two of you have been talking a lot about shifting the environment and shifting the environment that the work happens in for all. So not having it that one person's environment is the dominant way of doing things. We're not inviting community to our table the way that we always run our meetings. We're looking for shared space. You've also talked about the time. You've talked about relationship And you've talked about getting that shared experience, shared understanding by having experiences that are beyond our formal roles or beyond the usual roles that we have when when we come into this work. Really interesting. Neither of you have said, actually, you just need to get two community people and invite them onto your steering committee. And that's the, the meeting of democratic processes. So very interesting, that one, isn't it? I forgot about that one. Sorry, Sharon. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, which is often what we see play out, isn't it? It's often what people do. Whereas I think the conversation that we've been having today is really showing the depth and the richness of the approach that needs to be taken if we're genuinely wanting to strengthen the democratic processes and and have it that people feel that they are genuinely a part of the process and the decision-making. And we've talked a lot about what helps that and what gets in the way. And there's been a lot of wisdom in today's conversation already, but I'm really keen to know if there was any pearl, is any 
seeds of wisdom that you'd really want to make sure that you've taken time to learn and you'd like to make sure you share with others? What are they for you? Yeah, a couple of things come to mind for me, and I do bang on about them quite a bit. One is changing the language about how government or even NGOs might engage with communities is engaging from the base of let's assume that the community is an asset that we need to take advantage of in the best possible way rather than a problem to solve. Mm-hmm. That that changes the way we do stakeholder analysis. And so I get very dubious about some of the conventional ways that that happens, which divides stakeholders up in terms of how interested they are in something and then how much influence they've got. And normally that means that the people we need to focus on the most are the people who are the most interested and the people with the most power. And it actually just reinforces exclusion. Mm-hmm. And and then organisations will then complain, we just keep hearing from the same people all the time. What do average people think or what do the other people think? But they've designed a process that really plays for those who are already quite powerful and the hyper-engaged. And I think, well, yeah, that's not a very good tool. But if our starting point is a whole range of people in the community have something valuable to contribute how do we make space for that to be offered and valued and we can actually map that that actually changes the dynamic it actually means that people are asking different questions in organizations what is it that people can contribute what can we learn from them what can we offer what can they offer and what i find is that you know it's that people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care so unless an organization is modeling that they really care about what people experience what's worrying them, what they're thinking about, what their hopes and aspirations are, and they demonstrate that they care about that, it's unlikely that people with that interest in other information might be really useful for them to take on board. It's a bit like, you know, the psychiatrist who will, to get someone to open up, will decide to share something about herself, you know, and something personal, and that will then give permission for someone to be a bit riskier in, you know, sharing mm-hmm. something about themselves. And I think that that happens when we're modelling that we're interested. And what I tend to find is that people are much more curious about what what other people, like technical experts, might be bringing to a conversation after they have been able to contribute and their stuff has been valued. So I might leave it there. I did have some other thoughts, but I, I'm keen to hear from Jen. So as you start talking, and I had a little list in my head, Max, and now I've got a different list building on talking about about really valuing the the different types of expertise that people bring there's something then about being able to hold conflict and genuinely value it so we're not going to make anything that matters if we don't make a mess in the process and we have to celebrate divergent views and pull apart what that looks like and when it happens in a room things can't come together unless you pull all all that out so really embracing that and honouring the fact that you're going to get different views and that that's a good thing. And even conflict and people angry and that's all fine. None of this is going to be easy. And the other thing I think is that, and I think we've all talked about this before, is that change, big change can happen in small ways. So that when we think about democratic processes or you know how we work together for whole of community change, that yes, we can dismantle some of the big things that are in the way, But we can also learn by doing small things really well, to Max's point, about changing the way we show up, changing how our processes are, changing the way we communicate, change the way we bring people together to step into a space. And it it doesn't have to be that we're redesigning a whole community, for example. We We could be changing one thing in a small system, if you will. But how we do that and what happens as a result can have a really big influence. So there's not 
it's not all the big razzle dazzle. Sometimes a lot of that stuff doesn't work because we've just tried to bite off something way too big before we've got the rhythm, rhythms, practice and confidence to step into that. So we can still think big in this space and act small, if you will. Is there anything that either of you had thought about coming into today that you thought, you know, this is really important. I really want to make sure that I get this across today, that the questions either haven't given you the room to answer or that you've thought of that you want to add to the conversation before we finish up today? For those people listening, we, we can see each other. So I was looking at Max thinking as, as he was thinking. The, thing, the only thing that really came up for me is I think there are seeds to all of this. So sometimes we, and I think of this on like a big government scale, sometimes things have to be huge to be done, but we can find the seeds of democratic processes as well and look at the small, back to the small things can change, but, but we can grow and nurture the seeds as well. It doesn't all have to be huge. So what's a seed, Jen? Oh, that's a very good question. I, I imagine it's probably everything that we covered. It could be small opportunities to work together differently about creating something. Like even the way we design a democratic process can be democratic in itself. So I'll give you an example. I don't know that it's whole of community. It was involving children. The brief was to co-create a mental health strategy for a school. And that involves community. And typically with education, those those exercises are statutory. You have to do one. And they can be very straightforward. Teacher X comes together with principal Y and they, they write this up. But the school wanted to do it differently and they wanted to embed it. So we, we came up with a, a journey of involving everyone in the process. And we, we together created a very transparent process of asking everyone. And we sort of involved 2,000 people in that. But the, young, the kids, the, the youngest kids were the ones that designed the engagement strategies. So they actually, we had questions to Max's point about good questions, but we didn't know how to ask them in ways that would work. So we we worked with the year fives actually um, to come up with ideas. And so they came up with the ways that we were engaging. So if I think about democratic processes where everyone's ideas are coming into the mix, that there are pieces within that that can also be done differently and creatively. And the way that they went about that process and involved everyone was actually what got the outcome and it made it sustainable. So, cause we're all talking about movement building here. So I know the context example is quite small, but the, the students created a movement about mental health and how they wanted it to be different. The output, which was the strategy was just a result of that. And it was how we involved different people in different ways that were, that worked for them and that built on the knowledge and expertise of the different groups of people involved in that. And so small things, like it working with the year fives on engagement strategies. It may seem small, but it was it was it was incredibly powerful. Hmm. And it honored the, the voice that the kids brought, which was the expertise about how to do that. So it's prompted me to say something after all, Jen. I think I may have shared with you previously about working with some young people in Madison, Wisconsin, around a thing called a sidewalk view of the world. It was a case study trip when I was doing a conference with IAP2 in 2004 and there were a lot of a lot of pedestrian casualties and people riding bikes being knocked over and being doored and all that kind of thing and after getting some consultants in to examine how the situation could be improved they thought hmm, a lot of kids are actually the victims of these accidents so we should involve them and it's kind of was really interesting about this thing you were talking about Jen that how we do the process is really incredibly important and in a way should reflect the sort of thing we're trying to achieve at the end. So the young people 
were equipped with speed cameras, speed guns, and did surveys. They walked around, they took photos, they presented recommendations to the city of Madison and WISDOT, the Wisconsin Department of Transport. And I think three quarters of their recommendations, I put together about 80 of them, were <clears throat> implemented within six months. And having met with those kids, they'll, they'll never see themselves as just consumers of life. They, they thought this was amazing, really interesting. <clears throat> we learned to pitch our case. They listened to us. But the fact that they were involved in the process of shaping the research meant that they got really into it. Mm. It also meant that the rest of the community were observing and following the story about their work, and they become more mindful about being more careful. And they did have quite an impact on reducing the number of pedestrian casualties. But there's a lot of power in involving people in being part of creating a solution, not just being there to kind of tell us what you think, what we should do, you know, and that changes a lot. And I I think that also mindful of this whole, the principle of simultaneity, we talk about in appreciative inquiry a lot, that you start to change the system as soon as you start asking better questions. Mm. So we don't have to think we ask, have a perfect plan, implement it. Hopefully there are some good recommendations. Hopefully the recommendations are implemented and one day maybe things will change for the better. If we think, actually, we can start changing the system by the way we engage people right now and talk Mm. to them. Mm. That actually puts in place a chain reaction by conversations that happen. And, you know, I really want to encourage listeners just to know that We have so many examples where there are amazing things have happened, where we have decision makers saying, who are initially really sceptical, saying, wow, that is just incredible, the advice that we got from that and how appreciative people were and how much they valued the expertise of technical experts and how they worked together and even had some decision makers saying, we committed that we would do whatever this group came up with, provided they reach consensus because we thought they would never get consensus and they <laughs> did, you know. And and we have people saying, you know, I came in thinking this and then I learned so much I've had to let go of my point of view. I now see things quite differently. Mm. I've got a different lens. And so it's that shift from being sometimes a really upset resident to that person that's more citizen-minded saying this is what's in the interests of our community. Mm. This is where we should go because they've connected to more people. This happens all the time. It does happen. We're not just talking kind of theoretically here. This mm. is We see this often and always, and it's why we love what we do. Beautiful. Well, thank you both for your time and considered efforts for today. There's been a lot, I think, for us all to absorb around the importance of, of not only including people but how you include people and how you create an environment that is a new environment for all to participate, think and explore some of the interesting questions that need to be posed in order to shift how people are involved in democratic processes. So thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you.